You're listening to Echo Zoe Radio, episode 42, for October 2011, with guest Mike Abendroth on Sola Scriptura. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com and president of Echo Zoe Ministries. Thanks for joining me for episode number 42 for October 2011. For this episode, I'm joined by Pastor Mike Abendroth of Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylston, Massachusetts. Mike is also the host of No Compromise Radio, which you can find online at NoCompromiseRadio.com or on iTunes by searching for No Compromise Radio. Our topic this month is the Reformation Doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Before we begin, I have just a few things I'd like to mention. This is the third episode in a series on the five solas of the Reformation. If you haven't listened to the previous two, I encourage you to visit echozoe.com 31 for the episode with Dr. James White on Sola Gratia and Sovereign Grace as well as echozoe.com slash 37 for the episode with Phil Johnson on Sola Fide. Echo Zoe Ministries is releasing both of these episodes on CD, which you can purchase for $10 each at their respective pages on the site or at echozoe.com slash store. To find out just how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, visit echozoe.com slash support. There are several ways you can support Echo Zoe for little or no money, such as through prayer, writing a review at iTunes, or using our Amazon affiliate link when you shop online. Also, please feel welcome to contact me. You can visit echozoe.com contact and send me an email, or find the Echo Zoe page on Facebook at facebook.com slash echozoeministries, all one word. You can follow Echo Zoe on Twitter at at echozoe, or my personal account at at avgandy. I'm also on Google+, and you can find my profile at gplus.to slash Andy Olson. I would love to get postcards from you. If you'd like to send me an old-fashioned letter or a postcard, you can send it to Echo Zoe Ministries, P.O. Box 27465, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55427, USA. That address and our phone number are also available at the contact page, echozoe.com slash contact. Thanks again for listening. Here's my conversation with Pastor Mike Abendroth. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks so much for taking some time this uh, Wednesday afternoon to come on and talk with Echo Zoe Radio and discuss Sola Scriptura with us. Andy, I'm super glad to be on and appreciate your ministry. Well, thank you. So today we're going to talk about Sola Scriptura. I've been putting together uh, kind of a slow-paced, non-contiguous series on the five solos of the Reformation. We spoke to Dr. James White about a year ago was the first one I did. We talked about sola gratia and, and uh, sovereign grace and how those two doctrines come together. And then uh, a few months back, I talked to Phil Johnson about sola fide. So we're in the third of our installment. We're talking about sola scriptura today. And uh, maybe we'll just jump in and get started. Yeah, that'll be great. Sadly for you and your audience, so Andy, you go from James White 
to the venerable Phil Johnson, and then now down to the bottom of the barrel. But the good news is, uh, we we all believe the same in the same Lord, and we all believe in the same Scripture. So I think at least that puts me on well, the level. Well, I think you you put yourself down a little too much there. You know, we're all we're all men. We're all uh, saved by grace. <laughs> <laughs> well. It is not a false humility, especially <laughs> compared to those two guys. But I'm glad to be on and and um, love to talk to you. All right. So we'll start off with uh, kind of the history of Sola Scriptura and where this doctrine came about and what it was a reaction to. Sure. Well, at the, at the heart of Sola Scriptura, we've got the problem of what kind of authority do we have as Christians? And where do we derive our authority now, what's the source of religious truth for God's people? That's really the issue. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, does it come from Scripture alone, or does it come from Scripture plus something else? Now, that something could be many things or just one thing. It could be something inside of us. It could be something outside of us. And so that is the real issue. Uh, do we have uh, the religious uh, truth for the people of God uh, in, found in Scripture. And so with all the solas, you've got the reflex, the uh, reaction to Rome, where they would have, for instance, instead of sola fide, faith alone, it would be faith plus sacraments. Uh, sola gratia, it would be grace, but a different definition of grace, plus other things. And so similarly here, Scripture alone is that everything we need for life and for truth? Uh, is Scripture sufficient itself for the authority of God's people, or do you need tradition and other things? And so that's really what it boils down to And when people ask for sola scriptura definition. Scripture alone, is it in fact talking about the Bible as the only infallible and inerrant authority for the Christian faith? Is it only that? And not just one, but is it only? And so uh, that's what we're, what we're really looking at today in the background, as probably you and most of the listeners know, would be uh, in response to the Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the Roman Catholic Church would deny Sola Scriptura. Where else would they look for authority? Well, the two uh, the two places they, they would look is they would look to church tradition and uh, the magisterium. And so, for instance, if we have the Pope speaking ex cathedra, uh, sitting on the chair of authority, then that would give us, uh, you know, something that we would have to obey as well. Uh, we have to follow. Uh, they would not believe the foundational doctrine uh, would be from the Bible alone. Uh, we call... Sola Scriptura, the formal principle of Protestantism, uh, as sola fide is the material principle, here we have the formal principle, and this formal principle has to do with source. And so really, if you get sola scriptura wrong, you get everything else wrong. Uh, this is foundational because uh, if we get this inaccurately, uh, if we diagnose this inaccurately, then Everything else just fades away. So Rome would come along, and they would say, well, tradition in the magisterium would teach us that it is not faith alone, because they're going to look at Scripture a certain way and have 
the Pope and the councils and traditions say something else. And so to me, as far as I'm concerned, Andy, if you get rid of Sola Scriptura, you get rid of everything else. Mm-hmm. So they have tradition as well as the teaching magisterium? Yeah, the teaching magisterium of the church, yes, and then you have scripture as well. Now, sometimes you get into Eastern Orthodox, or what sometimes people call uh, Oriental Orthodox churches, and they'll have other things like tradition and the episcopacy, uh, which are, you know, they're very close to Roman Catholicism with that triad of Bible, tradition, and then leadership in the church, whether you want to call it episcopacy or you want to call it magisterium. It just depends on, you know, which cat you're trying to skin. You know, you think about what Luther said uh, when it comes to this issue in the Roman Catholic Church and the sufficiency of Scripture. Luther said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And so you have this man that God uses, Martin Luther, and he wanted to say, well, the issue with the Roman Catholic Church uh, we can reform the church, and then later we'll have to run from the church. But the problems in the Roman Catholic Church can be solved by going back to the authority of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is sufficient to unscramble any incorrect doctrinal egg, including the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's what Luther was after, and I love that. The simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And so once you get rid once you get rid of the Bible, then it's whatever anybody says. But as long as you have mm-hmm. the Bible, then you can diagnose the church, its leadership, and tradition as well and find out A, does it match up? And B, if it doesn't match up, where does it contradict? Yeah, I I mentioned to you before we started that as I was preparing for our interview today, I was going through some materials by uh John MacArthur and, and uh, R.C. Sproul and whatnot. And I found this excellent book that Ligonier sells called Sola Scriptura. It's a collection of essays by seven different authors. And I had a great quote in here addressing this idea of uh, of the three-legged stool of the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, in the first chapter, Robert Godfrey says, In fact, if you listen carefully, you'll notice that the real authority for Rome is neither scripture nor tradition, but the church. What is scripture and what does it teach? Only the church can tell you. What is tradition and what does it teach? Only the church can tell you. As the Roman theologian John Eck said, the scriptures are not authentic except by the authority of the church. As Pope Pius IX said at the time of the First Vatican Council in 1870, I am tradition. The overwhelming arrogance of such statement is staggering, but it confirms our claim that for Rome, the only real authority is the church, sola ecclesia. Well, you know what, Andy, you stole my line because that chapter in the book is probably the best chapter, and you can pull it up online or your listeners can pull it up online with Robert Godfrey and Sola Scriptura. That is a great chapter, and he really mm-hmm. lays it out well. And I wanted to see, I wanted to steal that qu- that quote on the Pope because that was really a classic quote. So good job for studying that. Well, thank you. So um, we've got this idea of tradition and the church, along with scripture, I thought it might be important to talk about the Protestant view on tradition. What is the Protestant church? Uh, how do we regard tradition in regards to spiritual truth? What role does tradition play for us? 
Well, I, I almost want to break into a Todd Friel moment now and start singing it from Fiddler on the Roof with Tevia about tradition, uh, but I, I won't do that. I could call you Sir, though, except I think Todd <laughs> calls people Sir uh, when he's about ready to blast them. <laughs> well, if you just think about it largely at, at, the, at the grand scope of things, we all have traditions in our life, and we even have traditions in the local church whether that's making announcements before the church service or having some potluck, pot providence afterwards, certain order of service, tradition isn't in and of itself bad. And so just because somebody has a tradition, it doesn't mean it's wrong. When you look at the word tradition in Scripture, and you'll see the Roman Catholics go to some of the epistles to say, well, look at see where the word tradition is used. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, when the word tradition is used, it's talking about what the apostles have taught, and then it's been taught down from one generation and one church to the next. And so what they do is they make the error of saying, see the word traditions in the Bible, therefore we have the Bible and traditions, and they equate, they don't equate the two. They don't equate apostolic word and ministry with their tradition that is passed on. And so... You know, there's nothing wrong with tradition. We have them in our marriages, in our culture, in our society. The Indian culture has different traditions in the church than we do. Uh, but what we're after is, when do you hear God speak authoritatively? And I guess I could put it this way, who's on first? So what ranks under what? So for instance, let's look at it from a different perspective. Some kind of uh, Westminster Confession, or the 1689 London Baptist, or the Savoy, or the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church. Those are good summaries of the Christian faith, uh, but they must not overrule Scripture. And so we have a tradition of the 1689, and it has many good things in it. I agree with almost everything in it, maybe just a slight hair here or there that I wouldn't. And so it's a traditional creed, but it never uh, supplants scripture. It never even equates to scripture. You have, you know, think about it this way, Andy. If we have a sufficient scripture, then why do we need anything else? And I think that's a good place for Protestants to go. If we have a God who is uh, uh, all-knowing and he must equip his saints 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, he must equip them in the east and in the west and in the north and the south. He must equip men and women. He must equip his churches. How, how does he do that? And I think it's just a, the wonder of the Lord, how great he is, that he can, within 66 books, canonical books, have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need to know about God is found in Scripture. Everything you need to know about man is found there. Everything about salvation, Christ, eternal life, we have everything. And uh, as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is writing, matter of fact, about that very thing, and that's the heart of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for one, teaching, two, reproof, three, for correction, and for number four, training in righteousness, how to live a comprehensively righteous life. But then we forget the next one, I think, too often, and gender-neutral Bibles don't help us, that the man of God, now if you knew the Old Testament well, and you were reading this, and you were Timothy, that the man of God, here we have a pastoral epistle, how to do ministry in the local church, 
a pastor, an apostle to an elder, that the man of God, when the man of God is, is stated there, this is a preacher, this is a prophet, Ezekiel, the man of God, Jeremiah, the man, and, man of God, Timothy, you're a man of God and you have been given the scriptures. Of course, it applies to lay people too, that you have sufficiency in the scripture. But here, Timothy, you have a very difficult task and that is to shepherd the flock that Christ has purchased. What do you have in your toolkit? What do you have to do this with? One thing, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so if we have everything in the tool chest of Scripture, equipping us for every good work that we have, for evangelism, for edification, for everything, uh, then I don't need a tradition. I don't need the magisterium. I don't need the Pope. I don't need anything else that will try to sully the reputation of the sufficiency of Scripture. So now I better take a deep breath. I'll have a sip of my tea, and you can talk on your own show. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me a little off guard there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you thought you were listening to No Compromise Radio Ministry for a second. <laughs> for a moment, I did. <laughs> you weren't having to ask any questions. <laughs> That's the way I like it. I just ask the question, and I'll let you do the talking. <laughs> See, you just uh, run with that. Mm-hmm. We have the scriptures, the word of God, they have full authority, and they are clear, and they are sufficient. And so everything we need to know pertaining to life and to the Christian life, we have. What else, what, what else does sufficiency uh, entail? It means there's no deficiencies in scripture. Hmm. We don't need the deficient, we don't have a deficiency in scripture that needs to be filled with tradition, a papal pronouncement are some new doctrine or something else. And so vacuums must be filled. If you have something that is deficient, you need to, the vacuum of tradition will fill it. But since the scriptures are not deficient, they are sufficient, we therefore need no traditions to enlighten us to things like purgatory or praying for the dead or the intercession of Mary, etc. Sure. Now, and when we talk about sufficiency, we're talking about spiritual truth and uh, the gospel, justification, sanctification, but we're not necessarily talking about nuclear physics, for instance. Well, if nuclear physics is uh, applying to salvation or how to live a Christian life, then I guess it would, but I don't think mm -hmm. it really does. We're not talking about sufficiency on how to go hunting for your family's food or uh, how to get a good deal down a price chopper. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to living this Christian life, uh, we have the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. When it comes to uh, the Christian faith, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to holiness, uh, we have everything we need. So let's talk a little bit about the Scripture itself. The Catholic Church will say that they are almost, they almost put themselves above the Scripture because they'll say that they were the ones that canonized Scripture in the first place. So let's get into the nature of the canon. Are there any books that were not canonized that should have been? Were there books that were canonized but shouldn't have been? How do we reconcile the canon, and how do we uh, stand against this claim by the Church of Rome that says that, well, we decided what it was, and, and so we decide what is needed in addition to it? Yeah, when it comes to the canon, it's very interesting. Canon just is, means, you know, a yardstick. It's a plumb line. 
the Protestants, of course, would have 66 books in the canon. And then you have the Roman Catholic canon with the Apographa, or as we say here in New England, the Apographer. Uh, we have. And it just depends on how you count Bell the Dragon Slayer and Tobit, etc., cetera, uh, to get the right number. But uh, these books, uh, certainly some of the books I was even telling my son last night, First and Second Maccabees, there are historical truths in some of these books. But one of the ways I like to look at the canon of Scripture is this. Uh, let's just think about the time of Christ and how he looked at the canon. Now, the canon at the time of Christ was, of course, uh, the Old Testament, 39 books for the English canon, I believe 22 books in the Hebrew canon, with the same material. And what did Jesus say and what did he not say? So he affirmed Jonah. He could have said, by the way, uh, that whole story was an allegory and it was made up and, and uh, no big fish really swallowed a man. Uh, but no, he affirmed it. He affirmed Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't say that was a figurative story to make you shudder at the, at the sin of hospitality. He didn't say anything like that. He affirmed it. He affirmed Adam and Eve. The way to think of Scripture, I like to, in my mind, say to myself, uh, how did Christ consider Scripture? And he could have easily made changes and said, you know what, that canon is wrong, and you need to add books or subtract books. He's the Son of Man. He's God incarnate. He could have easily taken care of that. But he didn't do anything except preach from it and affirm it as thus saith the Lord. You see that refrain throughout the scripture, this self-authenticating, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And so I like it when I study Christ to see what he did with the Old Testament scriptures. And then by implication, I can do the same with the New. And you watch the way the New Testament deals with the Apographa. The Apographa is not quoted in the New Testament. You can see things quoted from Moses regularly, David regularly, prophets regularly. Just study the allusions of the Old Testament found in the New, quotations of the Old Testament found in the New. Uh, they are multiple, but you can't find any quotation in the New Testament when it comes to Apographa. And so that's one of the ways I like to look at it. You think about how God providentially puts together scripture. If I were God, I would, I would be more like the Mormon God. Here are the tablets. They cannot be altered. They cannot be messed with. They cannot be uh, uh, damaged. Here are the tablets. But that's not how God gave us scripture. That's not how he gave it to us at all. I see the providential hand of God working through history making sure the canon is just right, excluding books that aren't supposed to be there, having all the churches, for instance, in the New Testament, affirm certain books and receive them. They didn't determine what was in the canon. They acknowledged which ones were apostolic and therefore in the canon. And I just see the providence of God wonderfully and marvelously putting together the canon of Scripture so that the churches, East and Western churches, would recognize it. And I think that's a testimony to God's sovereign hand. If there is a God who speaks, uh, he can make sure we have exactly what we need in the canon. And so the question I think Catholics should ask themselves uh, would be, why are those books included? And does it have anything to do with, we need certain doctrines in our church 
So therefore, we've got to go find books that teach those doctrines and include them so we have some authority over people to tell them what to do regarding prayers for the dead or purgatory, for instance, and then getting Mm -hmm. indulgences for them. Now, I'm not dramatically familiar with the Apocrypha, but it's my understanding that the Apocrypha was added after the Reformation began. Is that true? Yeah. um, And and is that significant to the discussion? Well, yeah, I think it's significant for 1,500 years, I guess, we hadn't, we didn't have a complete canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of having the book of Revelation in the late 90s, middle 90s, as the last book of the New Testament canon, and therefore the canon of Scripture itself, uh, we had uh, a deficiency in the canon until Rome came along, and it's around 1547 is my guess, if I had to guess a date when uh, Rome acknowledged the Apocrypha as canonical. and so Which is about 30 years after Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation. With Yeah, and isn't it interesting when it comes to these unbiblical and extra-biblical doctrines and books? By the way, I'd encourage your listeners to get the Apocrypha. You can get it all online now and just read through it. And you will definitely see, this isn't the test, and this isn't scientific, but it is very fascinating. Just begin to read those, and you will not have the Spirit of God bear witness uh, to you, nor will the Spirit of God illumine these things. And I think you'll quickly say, uh, these things do not have the sound, they don't have the ring or the tone of canonicity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the Roman Catholics needed certain doctrines, and so they had to find books to get them. Uh, I like what happened in the midst of all this Reformation issue, and I know you know the details. Uh, Catholic Church is going to excommunicate Luther and probably kill him if he doesn't recant. And then listen to Luther's sola scriptura without the Latin pronunciation. What he says is basically sola scriptura when it comes to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Unless, therefore, I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture— or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Mm-hmm. And so I love Luther when he said that. By the way, I went to Germany, Andy, and stood on the spot where Luther said that. The, the yeah, I've been there too. The, is that the, the plaza in uh, Worms? Yes, it is. And I was asking the guide that I had. I found a special guide down at the library because there was a little plaque there. Here I stand. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, is this actually the plaque? And he said, well, this is the plaque, but the way the church was... Uh, laid out, this couldn't have been the spot, but they put the plaque here because it was kind of shady for the tourists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was interesting. I've been to Germany, too, and and I I went to uh, Wittenberg, and I went to the Wartburg Castle, and uh, we went to Worms, and all those other places, there's a building. You can go in the church that that Luther preached in in Wittenberg, and you can go to the castle that he studied in in Wartburg, which is near um, Eisenach, I believe. Yeah, good. And uh, but you go to Worms, and it's just a, a a plaza. It's a little park. There's no church there or anything. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, just to the side there, I think there's some building. 
that was fun to cruise around. I love the castle Vortburg mm-hmm. and uh, walking I was disappointed around. by Vortburg because they get into the history of you know, the the king that built the castle and kind of some of the the lore behind it and whatnot. And you go through this whole tour, and then you get to the end, and they say, "Oh yeah, if you're interested in that Luther room, just keep going. It's down the hall. You'll see it on your way out the door." Well, I, I must not have paid the same guy you did. Uh, hey, I have an interesting thing. I don't know if our listeners would care about this or not, but uh, I, I'll just take liberty to do it. They sold down in the bookstore at the Vorms and uh, uh, at the Vorberg Castle. Did you see those little frog demon god things? I don't remember that. Yeah, they've got these long arms. They look like the creatures that are on Wizard of Oz that would come and get Toto and. The monkeys, the flying monkeys. Yeah, they look like that, except they're made of they're frogs, and they have it looks like boxer shorts on there with blue and white pinstripes. And this was a representation of a weird superstitious god that was during the time of Luther, and people would hang them around the house to keep the other other worse demons out. Strange. So I have one hanging in my house in Massachusetts that sometimes I show off. That's strange. I bought a. uh, letter opener that looks like a sword and that's about all i recall from the bookstore (laughs) (laughs) i mean one of the things about rome and getting back to sola scriptura Mm -hmm. i think they underestimate the spirit of god and his work not just in revelation not just in inspiration but also in illumination you've got rome who doesn't want the people to have the scriptures they may say things differently now uh, but the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and inflaming the mind and heart and enlightening the conscience. Listen to what Trent says. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, it decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine resting, W-R, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, who it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold, are even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations were never intended to be at any time published. I came Rome, across that as well. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Rome, Rome is f- afraid. And here's what Roman Catholic leadership is afraid of, that people will read their Bibles. Because if you read your Bibles, you will see the power of the Scripture, the exclusivity of Christ, the doctrine that uh, of faith alone, uh, that we have no other Savior but Christ Jesus and his mediatorial work. They are frightened. And so I always say to my Catholic friends when they say that I'm reading my Bible, I say, great, keep reading, because it is an explosive book, and Rome is petrified. And they saw what happened. Uh, They saw what happened when people uh, got the Bible like Luther. Uh, They knew what would happen if Tyndale finished that publication as he did of the English text, uh, of the the Greek text in English. Uh, They are very, very frightened, because then it's quickly... Uh, and patently obvious that tradition teaches something different than the Bible does. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but go to a verse that Protestants, for the most part, are very familiar with, 
Acts 17.11, or rather Acts 17.10-12, where Paul is addressing the Bereans. And the Bible really commends that, that they, they didn't just take Paul's word for what he said, that they went and searched the scriptures and saw whether or not what he was saying was true. Well, you think about that region there in Greece, and when you read First Thessalonians, you say to yourself, now that was a commendable church. Uh, Paul was very, very pleased with the work of God in that church, and yet here you have in Acts 17 uh, a higher commendation that you just talked about with the mm-hmm. Bereans. And I always use a slogan, I probably stole it, Andy, but I always say discernment is A, commended, Acts 17, and B, commanded first thessalonians chapter five and so what happens to a person that gets their hands on the bible they realize the pope no longer has absolute authority they realize that his jurisdiction is crumbling and people will do about anything to keep power especially unregenerate systems Mm -hmm. well we're moving along in the interest of time i wanted to get into uh, hermeneutics a little bit how can we approach hermeneutics in, in regards to Sola Scriptura to be sure that we're interpreting Scripture correctly? This Rome will protest that, that we can't be reading the Scriptures because we don't know how to interpret it properly. Okay, well, if that's the case, then I would say quite a few things in no particular order. Uh, I think the clarity of Scripture would be attacked, that somehow the Scriptures aren't clear and plain, and I think that the Scriptures are clear and plain. Uh, John Chrysostom, he said, you have Scripture for a master instead of me. From there you can learn whatever you would know. And uh, that's in the Godfrey article. You can read the Scripture and easily say, oh, that's what that means. That's what it says, uh, taken in light historical context and language context and time context and culture context. I have something called, Andy, the blue-collar hermeneutic. Mm. And that is uh, people who had blue-collar jobs then and now, they tended to be the audience uh, that uh, Paul, for instance, would write to. So when he wrote the circular letter called Ephesians, these people were were not uh, all scribes. They were not all seminary students, to use the vernacular of today. They were common people. We have an agrarian culture. Many could not even read. But once they heard the scriptures, and once they were in the temple, and then at the New Testament churches, they could easily decide and and determine, yes, if this is true or if it's not. Uh, Rome would say, see, you're doing the same thing that we do, but I don't care what Rome says, because I'll just go with what the Bible says. God has given himself Uh, God has spoken clearly and plainly in Scripture, then to help us understand Scripture, the Spirit of God illumines Scripture so that we can understand it. And then, furthermore, we have men who have been given the gift of teaching, Ephesians chapter 4, a special supernatural gift bestowed sovereignly by the Spirit of God to help teach the Scripture so that we can understand them better. And so you could have a Protestant that would a Protestant that would say, you know what, it's just me and my Bible and the Spirit of God. Well, it's you and your Bible and the Spirit of God, and unless you're on a desert island, you have the local church that has teachers to help you understand. Uh, but we are different than Rome. 
Rome would say, but we are the church and we'll tell you what to believe. We're trying to say we have teachers in the local church to help you understand what the scripture clearly says as you look at its authorial intent. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad you put it that way because when I think about teaching in general, not just scriptural teaching, but you know, academic teaching, one of the things that I learned in college is that a good teacher doesn't teach you the knowledge you need. The good teacher teaches you how to acquire the knowledge you need. And I find that so much in a good church. A good church not only teaches me the scriptures, but it teaches me how to approach the scriptures. Absolutely. What I tell the men all the time at the church that I'm training to be the future teachers of the church and pastors is I tell them when I preach, I have lots of goals. I have a goal to honor the Lord. I have a goal to exalt Christ Jesus. I have a goal to uh, expose the text through consistent exegesis. But I have another goal, too. And that goal is I am teaching the people every single Sunday how to study their own Bibles in context, authorial intent, you know, seeing the sweep of redemptive historical views. I mean, there could be all kinds of things that I'm trying to teach, but I'm trying to teach them that. And so uh, you are right. And I think on the flip side, when I look at Rome, here's the Second Vatican Council, this tradition which comes from the apostles develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. For as centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward towards the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their fulfillment in her. Well, what is that? How do I interpret what Rome even said there? They're trying to defend tradition, but tradition itself to them is morphing and taking clear focus, uh, becoming more clear as time goes on. So who's to say tradition now is going to equal tradition in a thousand years? And a matter of fact, that's already happened. Tradition changes. Roman Catholic Church changes. And for Scripture, we know we have this fixed light, this fixed, unchangeable canon. God has spoken. He's spoken clearly. And I'm just rambling. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Speaking truth, rambling truth. Well, I would never say, I would say I am rambling. I wouldn't be like Pius IX that would say, I am tradition. <laughs> I think one area we discussed um, before we recorded in, in discussing this interview and setting it up that uh, I think is really important to get into is I'd like to talk about some of the contemporary application of Sola Scriptura within the Protestant Church and where we find Protestants diverging from Sola Scriptura, and how we can address that. Good question, Andy, and we talked about that earlier, and I'm glad you brought that up today. Uh, Many of your listeners, maybe most of your listeners, would say, uh, we believe in Sola Scriptura, we believe we have uh, this once-delivered faith, and we don't need any tradition, we don't need any ecclesiastical authority, we don't believe in sola ecclesia. Uh, We don't believe in any of that. And so we're good. We're golden because we believe the right things. Now, certainly I'm glad you believe the right things, but there is a contemporary way that 
Christians, many Christians, maybe even listeners today, would do the same thing that Rome does. It's just uh, a horse of a different color, as people would say. So here's what I mean. Uh, When people begin to add internal machinations like God told me, God revealed to me, God gave me an impression, God gave me some intuition, God told me something and his spirit testified to my spirit something that it's not chapter and verse. They do. Charismatics do exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does. And that is put tradition, as as the Catholics put tradition equal to scripture, charismatics and some non-charismatics for that matter these days, but they're functionally charismatic, they do the same thing. God told me, and they run with it. They have a decision to make, and God said this, and God said that. Instead of saying, I'll trust the Lord with all my heart, I won't lean on my own understanding, and all my ways I'll acknowledge him, and he'll make my path straight. No, I need more information, and I need God to tell me. And so I think it's right to criticize Rome and to say we have Scripture alone, yet I want people to be, I want to be uh, consistent to say, I, as a Christian now, as a Protestant, I don't need to have a liver shiver or some Christian clairvoyancy uh, to make decisions. I have everything I need pertaining to life and godliness, and I think when you say God talks to you in prayer, you are functionally denying sola scriptura. That's, exa- that's, that, that's a quote from Phil Johnson, basically. <laughs> so, see, it might not be true if it comes from me, but if you quote an authority like Phil Johnson, it's true. <laughs> So I think there's mysticism galore in the local churches these days, and whether it's Blackaby and experiencing God or Beth Moore with her contemplative prayer and God talking to you stuff, mm-hmm. it, it, it's everywhere. I, I, you're too young probably, Andy, to know of Lily Tomlin, and she was a comedian. Do you know Lily Tomlin? I, I know who she is, yeah. Okay. She said, when you talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to you, Uh, It's called schizophrenia. (laughs) And I thought that was very insightful because people want to know from God, yet God has made a decision not to tell us the details of life. He has given us a scripture, and then we have to use wisdom. We have to use desire. We have to use wishes and then proceed, uh, not presumptuously, but knowing that God will be there in the future if we make a bad decision. Mysticism basically says, you know what, the Bible... It's okay, but we've got our own direct channel to God. And that's never been the Christian way. That's never been evangelicalism. That is a different religion, actually. I know Christians can do that. But B.B. Warfield said there's two religions in the world. One religion, you get revelation from outside of you, i.e. Christianity, fixed, uh, a fixed canon of Scripture, revelation. And the other religion is the religion that says you can have scripture, uh, something outside of you, in addition to something from your own spirit, how God mm-hmm. talks specifically to you. And so B.B. Warfield would say Christianity rests on external authority. And so to answer your question, I think similarly to this free will issue, lots of people believing in free will exactly like Rome did. They're functional Catholics because they don't believe in the bondage of the will. Mm -hmm. And the bondage of the will makes you a Protestant. And that's the 
key issue when it comes to the Reformation, Luther's most important book outside of the commentary to Galatians. So we say, ah, you know, we believe in free will, but that's what the Catholics believed in. Oh, well, we don't believe in in, uh, tradition, but we have God telling us what to do when we're praying. I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard God speak to me in prayer. And even if I did, I wouldn't trust it because why? Here's the issue. I am fallen. I am sinful. I am uh, not completely glorified yet. I am not glorified at all, but I'm not completely sanctified yet. And so I can't trust my heart. This Disneyland theology that says, go inside and trust your heart. I can't trust my heart. That's why I have the word. That's why I have elders. That's Mm -hmm. why I have a wife. That's why I have the local church to help me because I can't trust myself. And so anytime you look for a, you know, truth inside feelings, imagination, visions, and other things and voices, then you are denying sola scriptura. I've heard people compare that to, or describe that as a kind of a modern day manifestation of Gnosticism. Yeah, well, and that sounds exactly what it's like. Um, Edwards used to call those kind of people that would go around saying, God told me all the time. He said those kind of people were, quote, incorrigible, uh, end quote, because how can you reason with that? Well, God told me this. God told me that. Here's what they end up doing. You tell them, no, God didn't tell you because he's clearly said this opposite thing in Scripture. Then they take what their impressions were and they elevate them over Scripture because they'd rather hear the personal touch of God, the personal voice of God versus some old dry book. And I don't know why it is. I I do know why it is. It's just a figure of speech. But show me someone who is an expert in hearing from God, and I'll show you somebody that doesn't know their Bibles. It is uh, directly proportional. The way you know your Bible will help you be weaned from any kinds of impressions and thinking that your intuition is infallible or is a revelation So can you imagine people are thinking their intuition is revelation now? And I just think that's nonsense. Do a little study of church history, and you will soon find out that people that trusted their own hearts and what they thought was God speaking to them had disastrous effects, including George Whitfield, who, you know, heard from God that he was going to have a boy, did have a boy. And I think at four months old, he lost that boy named John uh, to... Uh, a pre- you know, the baby died, and he was told that that boy is going to be, a, you know, a young boy named John, going to be a great evangelist. And uh, later he said, you know what, I, I took fancy. I think the quote was, I mistook fancy for fiction. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's bad. You don't want to follow your heart. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, they followed their heart. You don't want to follow the peaceful feeling in your heart because church discipline you might have to do. You don't get a peace there. And mm-hmm. Jonah was disobeying the will of God, and he had a peaceful, easy feeling right down there in the bottom of the boat. Well, I'm glad you linked that uh, propensity to hear from God to your understanding of Scripture because I was going to ask you about that. Why does it seem like that seems to be almost ingrained in evangelicalism today that People hear from God. I mean, it's just kind of part of our culture now. You almost expect it in most churches that people will say, I had such and such decision to make, and, and God told me to, to choose this. Or, uh, Yes, yeah, some of it, Andy, is just sloppy verbiage. And mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, God did this or God said that. And I think they're just sloppy when it comes to it. 
Uh, but others, they have been influenced. And so experiencing God in the 80s, Blackaby is a complete mystic, and he says God speaks to you through impressions, and that you uh, should feel those things or you're not really experiencing God. Mm-hmm. Bill Gothard, he talks about checks in your spirit and inner promptings. Uh, so we've got big people. Beth Moore. Beth Moore, once she gets to the Old Testament and starts teaching about your tent of meeting and God's going to talk to you and contemplative prayer, buying into all that stuff. We have major evangelicals with major evangelical publishing companies backing them that are pushing subjective impressions as a fallible guide to doing you know, doing and feeling. Hey, I'm all for feelings. I'm all for impressions. I'm all for intuitions. I just don't trust any of them. And I don't live my life based on those. Uh, how, how could I? My life would be a complete disaster. And as a pastor, mm-hmm. I would like to tell your audience what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, avoid the mistake of concentrating over much upon your feelings. Above all, avoid the terrible error of making them central. And I would add, if you were going to make your feelings central in decision-making, then I really don't have a piece about that. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a little time left, and uh, I've got another question that I, I didn't prepare you for, but I think you'll do all right. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to talk to, about Sola Scriptura in relation to the various cults and how they abuse Sola Scriptura. Great question. I, when I teach cults, and I've taught cults on Sunday nights before, uh, it's very simple for me. You have all kinds of things that they say and do and believe and certain things they can do and can't do, etc. I always have three questions, and I don't know why I made them alliterate, but they just do. I don't know if you should always alliterate, but in this particular case, I always uh, want to know, uh, secondly, about the Savior. What do they teach about Jesus? Thirdly, salvation, how are you right with God? How does God declare you right? How are your sins forgiven? How are you redeemed, reconciled, etc.? But the first question I ask is source. What's their source of authority? And inevitably, every cult out there will have either their own book alone, or they'll have the Bible plus their books. And so, for instance, Mormonism, King James Bible, plus, you know, Doctrines and Covenants and the Book of Mormon, uh, Seventh-day Adventism, the Bible, plus Ellen G. White, uh, you know, Christian Science, uh, the Bible, plus the writings of Mary Glover, Baker, Eddie, Patterson, Fry, whichever husband you prefer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think I stole that from MacArthur. Uh, So it's the source And so they've either got the wrong source, i.e. the Quran, or they've got the right source, the Bible plus. And so when you have the Bible plus, you're not doing the Bible any favor. It goes back to that deficiency. I'm going to start using that term a lot. We have the sufficiency of Scripture because it has no deficiencies. If there was a deficiency in it, then we would uh, no longer have a sufficient view of it. And so the cults, they do the exact same thing. It's the Bible plus this and the Bible plus that. And so uh, we have a test, and that test is the Bible alone. And by the way, why don't you study the Bible for the rest of your life? And after you master it, you can go on to another book. (laughs) Thankfully, this has the mind of the infinite God contained in it, and you can study this book 
until you die. You can live as old as Methuselah did, 969 years, and never exhaust the uh, wonderful riches in the Bible. Matter of fact, you won't be able to exhaust how great God is throughout all eternity in heaven either because you are finite and he is infinite, and uh, I take great rest in that. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, I don't have any more questions for you, but um, before we close, I just wonder if you have anything else that you might want to talk about or any other points you'd like to make before we close? Well, my my uh, my major point would be these days when it comes to that last second to last point you me- mentioned about functional denial of sola scriptura and those things. I just want you to study the Bible if you're listening today. Read the Bible. S. Lewis Johnson is right. Americans and Westerners have problems with it, and it's because they don't read their Bibles. And so then when you read the Bible, you can understand who God is and who man is and how great the chasm is between the two, yet it was gapped by the precious work of Christ Jesus, his substitutionary death on our behalf and his resurrection, and then all the other details that go along with it. And you'll begin to say, you know what? Just because I had an experience, it doesn't mean it's true. Just because something works, it doesn't mean it's true. Just because I feel something, it doesn't mean it's true. Just because I think it's true for me, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You will see that the Christian faith is not true because somebody feels it, because it works, but because it is true. And what Francis Schaeffer said, uh, he would call Scripture true truth. And in a day of postmodernism, we need true truth, and we need to go back to the Bible. And We need a Reformation in our day uh, with the charismatic folks and others who say it is Scripture plus errant prophecy, it's scripture, scripture plus this feeling, Scripture plus these other things. I'm not saying people are not Christians. Charismatics aren't Christians. I'm saying I want, and this is what I think Charismatics would agree with me, I want to have a revival that goes back to the book, back to the Bible, back to using our heart, soul, mind, and strength to worship God instead of trying to bypass the mind. Think about faith, Andy. We have knowledge, assent, and trust. And the only way you can have a a good knowledge of God is through his revelation. The only way you can assent to that revelation is by using your mind to study the revelation and then say, I agree. And then to trust, you need an object. This is not trust in trust or faith in faith. It's trust in the revealed word of God. And I think the best way I like to think about it, and I'll close with this, Faith is saying, God, I'll take you at your word. And so I don't want to have tradition as, as the word of God or magisterium or my feelings. I have the word of God. And when God says something in his word, I take his word for it. And I think that's what faith is. Well, thank you. You talk about we need an ongoing reformation. I put down in my notes here, I was watching through uh, R.C. Sproul has a series, What is Reformed Theology?, and I was uh, watching through the video on Sola Scriptura, and he used this term, Semper Reformanda, always undergoing reformation. That's exactly right. We want to always uh, undergo reformation, and uh, the work of God in our hearts is doing the same thing. And then one day, uh, our position in Christ and our practice will match up. And then, can you imagine in heaven, no more reformation? Amen. <laughs> well, you have a very blessed ministry in a wonderful church out in Massachusetts. How could people find your ministry, your radio show, uh, your new book that just came out, what have you? 
Sure. Uh, just since this is radio, I'll give you the first one. I'm the host of No Compromise Radio. You can go to nocompromiseradio.com, No Compromise Radio, and you can pull up the podcast there. You can go to iTunes, same thing, No Compromise Radio, and pull those things up. Uh, if you go to that website, No Compromise Radio, you can get my new book. It's about Jesus as king, and if you understand what a king was like 2,000 years ago, you'll understand Jesus a lot better, especially in the days of our you know, lack of kings and will serve no sovereign here and the democracy and that we live in. And then the church that I'm pleased to pastor is Bethlehem Bible Church, bbcchurch.org, bbcchurch.org. And then you can look at all the messages there and watch the videos of sermons and see how much hair I don't have, etc. <laughs> and that's in uh, West Boylston, Massachusetts? That is central Massachusetts. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. I very much appreciated the this discussion. Uh, it's a it's a great topic to talk about. Very important, very poignant, uh, very timely. And uh, I I appreciate coming on and I, your time. And uh, I thank you. Well, you're quite welcome. And I'll sign off with the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So, Andy, for guys like you and me, even we can understand. Uh, thank you. That wraps up Episode 42. Thanks for listening. For show notes for this episode, as well as scripture references and additional resources on the topic, please visit echozoe.com slash 42. Lord willing, I'll be back in November with episode number 43. And this being the October episode, we remember October 31st being the anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. 1517 was when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg Castle. So in remembrance of that event... I like to close the show with the Reformation polka. Then I was just a younger man, I studied canon law. Though Erfurt was a challenge, twas just to please my pa. Then came a storm, the lightning struck, I called upon St. Anne. I shaved my head, I took my vows in Augustinian. People, pools, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. The papal pools, indulgences, and transubstantiation. When Tetzel came near Wittenberg, St. Peter's prophet's sword. So I wrote a little message for the All Saints Bulletin Board. You cannot purchase merit, for we're justified by grace. Here's 95 more reasons, Brother Tetzel, in your face. Oh, papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. The papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. They loved my tracks, adored my wit, all were exemplar. The Pope, however, hauled me up before the Emperor. Are these your books? Do you recant? King Charles did demand. I will not change my diet, sir. God help me, here I stand. 
make fools indulgences and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your feces to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Duke Frederick took the wise approach, responding to my words. By knighting George's hostage in the kingdom of the birds. Use Brother Martin's model if the languages you seek. Stay locked inside a castle with your Hebrew and your Greek. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Now let's raise our steins and concord books together in this place. And spread the word that Catholic is spelled with lowercase. The word remains unfettered when the spirit gets her chance. So come on, Katie, drop your loot and join us in our dance. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation.